And so let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, I'm going to read to you from verse 3 all the way through verse 7. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You know, the spring of 2013 was probably the lowest moment of my life. In a thousand years, I couldn't have imagined or anticipated a set of events or a set of circumstances that would converge, that would lead Kim and I out of the church where I had served as a pastor for 27 years. Or out of the denomination that we had been in for over 30 years. That denomination had been, at that time, shaken by charges that were leveled against the leader of the denomination. And at that point, as an act of humility, he stepped aside to undergo evaluation, and then I stepped in as the interim president as the organization itself became deeply unsettled by the events that were unfolding. Now, the leader was rightfully cleared of the charges, but not before the seismic activity from all of those events delivered what was a kind of tsunami right into the middle of the denomination. And everybody, and all the churches, and all the pastors were shaken. And then in the middle of all of that, our family went through some real difficulties that polarized our local church. And I watched as my wife and my youngest daughter, who who both bubble with effervescent personalities, I watched as they lost that spark and they lost hope as our family went from being objects of love to objects of suspicion and division and acrimony. And in fact, in in one of the darkest weeks, back during that period of time, my oldest son then called to say that he was being unexpectedly redeployed back to Afghanistan right into a combat zone. Have you ever had a season where it just seems like all of heaven is arrayed against you? You just do not know what is going on. You stand utterly disoriented at the events that are taking place in your life, and you cannot fathom that you would ever be there. I honestly never realized that a Christian could be so heartbroken as I felt during that time. And yet I'm very aware as well that near the bottom of where we hit, there was grace. Not not the grace that, that spares us from pain and confusion, but the grace to stand and to be comforted in what we did not understand. 
And so, after consulting with the elders of our local church, it seemed like the wisest thing to do was to resign, to hit the reset button, and to to start over, which is what we did. So, on July 29th of 2013, Kim and I and our youngest daughter climbed into our car and we left our family and our friends and our church and we struck south for Tallahassee, drove down I-95, and quite honestly, as we drove the car, we were disoriented, we felt displaced, we were, I think, emotionally disordered because for the first time in our life, we had no no home, we had no people, we had no local church, we had never had that experience in the past. And it was, it was from that chaos, and it was with that chaos, that we arrived at the doorsteps of Four Oaks. Now in the arrangement with the elders... We had agreed on a three-year term that was intentional because I couldn't see any further out than three years. And so we said, let's do three years and then let's look out together. And so in August of 2013, the relationship between us and Four Oaks kind of officially began and Kim and I began to, to experience a love from this church that listened to us a vision from the elders of this church to create a workable arrangement that would help to restore us and move us forward, and and a heart that received us, that received our family with a kind of enthusiasm which we know we did not deserve. And as I've thought this past week, and as I stand here this morning, I want you to know I'm so grateful to God for the memories that I have of those first days that we enjoyed with you. Not only because they humble me when I think about it, not only because it inspires great gratitude in God as I think about you, but because when I read verse 3 in Philippians chapter 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul's thinking about the Philippians. I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about Four Oaks. Now, in this passage, Paul is engaging in the same exercise. He's reflecting on the history of what he calls this partnership. And he says the partnership began in the first day and it extends until now. In fact, we don't even need to speculate about what the first days were. Paul spells it out. And you might remember from when we studied the book of Acts in Acts chapter 16. There was a businesswoman, her name was Lydia, Uh, she was converted, she opened her home, and then her home became this base of operation for Paul's ministry. And during that time, there's all kind of crazy things going on because Paul casts out this this spirit of divination, it says, from, from a young lady, which effectively shut down her psychic business, which really ticked off her master's. And so her master seized Paul and Silas and threw them into prison. They were beaten, they're they're jailed, but not to worry because an earthquake opens up the prison doors. The jailer sees all of this taking place. Paul preaches the gospel to him. The jailer gets saved. His family comes in. The family gets saved. And a church is started out of that known as the Philippian church. I mean, this history that he's talking about back in the first days, this history has it all. I mean, there was the the supernatural, there was persecution, there were problems, there were all kind of things going on. But the letter that we're reading this morning, this epistle, was actually written 12 years later. And Paul's not with the Philippians now. He's sitting in prison, probably in Rome. The Philippian church has developed into a somewhat strong church, but they're experiencing their their problems. First, they're under attack. In chapter 1, verse 28, Paul talks about their opponents. But they also have some internal issues that they're dealing with, specifically these problems with disunity. 
In chapter 4, Paul talks about the division between Iodia and Syntyche, two women that are in the church that are having such a deep conflict that Paul actually writes about it in Scripture and encourages the entire church and the leaders of the church to get involved because of the conflict between these two women. But that conflict seems to be a microcosm of what's going on in the church. There is rivalry, there is conceit, there are believers putting themselves forward. In fact, Paul speaks specifically and directly to the issue in chapter 2, verse 3, when he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. He says that because there was rivalry. He says that because there was conceit, so he's encouraging them away from that behavior that tends to divide local churches. And this entire profile is very important because it makes the opening words that Paul gives to them all the more striking because we think about the inception of this church. We think about the problems of this church, the challenges that they're going through. We think about the fact that the man that is writing to them is in prison. And then we read verse 3 where he starts by saying, I thank God in all my remembrance of you. Now, I'm, I'm no Paul, but I can identify with the gratitude that he feels when he thinks about the Philippians because there are a few things that Paul remembers about the Philippians that are the very things that Kim and I will always remember about Four Oaks. And so, if we were going to have a heading this morning, the the heading that I would offer to you is Remembering the Philippians and Four Oaks. Remembering the Philippians and Four Oaks. And I want to pull out some things from the text that I think apply first to the Philippians, but I believe also apply to this local church that we have come to love with all of our heart. So point number one, remembering your example in prayer. Now, not to confuse you, but this is actually an area, prayer is actually an area where Four Oaks is is more like Paul. So Paul's remembrance of the Philippians is fueled, apparently, by his prayer for the Philippians. And I say that from verse 4, where he says, well, verse 3, I always thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So if you're wondering, boy, how do we know that Paul loves the Philippians? It's not only in what he says, but it's, it's in how he prays for them. A great measure of Paul's heart for the Philippians was seen and observed by how he prayed for them. And oh my, how he prayed. I mean, look at verse 4 where he says, always in every prayer, for all of you. And by the way, I make that prayer with joy. So Paul's prayers were like constant. They were comprehensive. They were specific. He goes on to pray in verse 9. We didn't read this, but it's worth looking at now. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So he's praying for these specific things for the Philippians. And in all of this, even as we come right out of the gate in chapter 1 of the Philippians, there is this undeniable reality that one of the primary ways that Paul remembered the Philippians was through prayer. It was the way he loved them. Do you ever notice that? Do you ever notice how the more attached you are to someone, the more we pray for that person? That there is a sense where our, our prayers track behind our affections. Our prayers reflect and reveal our affections. See, that's Paul. That's Paul. He says in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. In verse 8, he says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. See, Paul's Paul's prayers had this incessant quality because his love for the Philippians was so deep. And I'm inspired by his example 
And I say that to say that I'm inspired by your example as well. See, this is where Kim and I want to tell you that it has been such a blessing to us to come to Four Oaks and to observe specifically your practice in prayer. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily something that you worked hard to get at. There are ways that God smiles and shines upon local churches where he creates a vein, he creates a DNA from early on. It just becomes a strength within the local church that exists, not only to magnify his name, but to stir other people. And this part of your DNA has stirred Kim and I, I can't tell you the number of times I've had members stop me to just say, listen, just want you to know we're praying for you. Or to have people ask me, how can we pray for you? Or people invite me, why don't you come and let us pray for you? I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I want you to pray for my house. I do that knowing, without a question, in my mind, there's going to be prayer ascending for my house, and we're probably out of here much sooner because I mentioned it to you. And I want you to know how refreshing that is for me because I came from a world of doing. I I came from, my dad was a steel worker. I have absolutely no, no memories of him ever talking about his job, ever. He just did it. He was just a doer. Then, when I was in college, I was converted into into a world that was influenced by by a stream of kind of Pentecostal pietism. If that doesn't mean anything to you, just think like the holiness movement, like hyper on holiness. And that's not a slam. I mean, I'm immensely grateful for the way it oriented me, but it it put this thing inside of me that Christianity is about effort and, and it's about doing and action and application. And it is, but it is not exclusively that and it can't be reduced to that. And for me... It all led me to assume that somehow all of my problems could be fixed through effort. That all of my problems could be fixed by just doing the right thing or bringing the correct leadership in that situation. In fact, if someone were to ask me, Dave, what's your biggest surprise about leadership in the last 30 years? I would say to them that I never imagined doing could be so dangerous and waiting could be so glorious because I didn't have a grid for that as a newer believer. I never imagined that kind of smuggled within the gift of leadership would be this cancerous assumption that leadership could solve all of my problems. That effort could solve all of the challenges that I was going to have with the church or all of the experiences we were going to have as parents or all of the difficulties that I might have in relationships. That sometimes my activity did nothing more than prop up the illusion that I can control my life, that I can control my my job and my kids and my family and my circumstances. That sometimes it just doesn't work that way. And one of the realities that I had to come to terms with is that, you know, in, in, in some ways, activity is very easy. It's prayer that's hard. Activity is very easy. It's, it's prayer that's hard. And thankfully, that's not Paul's example. And thankfully for Kim and I, that's not your example either. I mean, for the guests that are here, I, I just want to... I want to boast about this church for a second, and not because I think it magnifies any person, because I really do believe this is something that God has done within the heart of this church. But, but this church has a long history of praying in a very serious way. It's why the elders have met weekly for years just to pray for the people of God here. It's why the ladies right now are going through a K-author book on prayer. It's why the men meet early and have met early for many years just to pray. It's why... You know, Terry Dudley is always trying to gather women together to pray together as much as possible and over as many things as possible. It's why if you ever have a meal with Kent Hamilton, you want to be the person that prays over the meal because if you cede that over to him, you will be praying during the whole meal and eating a cold meal 
because the man is serious about prayer. He's an elder. He's serious about prayer. See, that's not a strength for me. That's still not a strength for me. But it's not because of you. And I want you to know this morning, I am so glad for your example. It's how I'll remember you. It's how Kim and I will remember you. So that's point number one, remembering your example in prayer. Number two, remembering our partnership. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I love that word partnership. That's a word that's intentionally chosen by God to specifically describe the relationship between the Philippians and Paul. That word is of a word that's probably familiar to some, perhaps even many of you. The word is koinonia in the Greek. We typically hear that applied to like community and small groups uh, activity and things like that. But its root meaning is basically sharing something in common. So what do the Philippians and Paul share in common? Well, well, Paul says it to the Philippians. It is a partnership in the gospel. In verse 7, he talks about them being partakers of the grace of God together. So in other words, Paul and the Philippians have these relationships that result in the gospel being enjoyed, that result in the gospel being applied, that result in the gospel being proclaimed, and it's able to happen more together than it's able to happen with them apart. It's a partnership that Paul shared with the Philippians, and this is what he's rejoicing over, that it began on the first day and it extends until now. And part of what I want to celebrate this morning is just that I've had the privilege, that Kim has had the privilege for the last three and a half years of sharing a partnership in the gospel with with Four Oaks Church. That for us, the first day was three and a half years, so we're going to own it for the last three and a half years until now. You see, shortly after our arrival, probably within the first year, the Sojourn Network board asked me to assume leadership, invited me to become the executive director of Sojourn Network, but I declined. Uh, I was unprepared. I was unhealthy. I was not ready. And that was with the counsel of the, the men around me. And so they returned about a year after that. And in taking that question to the elders here and to the pastors here, we were deeply affected and so encouraged that the Four Oaks elders had faith to, to send me and had faith to say, we, we, we want Dave to continue to serve at Four Oaks, but we also recognize that there's benefit to him serving beyond Four Oaks, and we want this partnership with Sojourn Network, and we want to sow Dave into the field. We want him to be an extension of Four Oaks into the field here. And so as I began to do that, it was a wonderful experience, but that's where I learned a, a critical lesson, and the lesson was that though I love Four Oaks, and I like Tallahassee, I hate the Tallahassee airport. <laughs> now, I, I value words. I choose them wisely. I choose them carefully. You're, you might be thinking, oh, Dave, you know, you're just, that's just embellishment. You're, you're just using that for effect. No, I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. I, I need to be reconciled to the Tallahassee airport, which is really weird, but that's the way my mind is working this morning. You know, you, because you might be here this morning thinking, you, maybe you're sitting here suspicious. Oh, you know, I, there's probably really something else going on here. Does Dave have some kind of unreconciled relationships? Is there some tension between Dave and Paul? Is there something going on behind it? Nothing going on there. Here's where the tension is. It's me and the Tallahassee airport, and it remains unresolved. Because over the, yeah, amen, over the past couple of years, I, I've, been, I've been trying to lead this national network from Tallahassee, which has been an honor, it's been thrilling, it's had its challenges, 
But as the network has experienced some, some growth and Sojourn Network needed more time, and, and the pastors and the elders here had faith to release me, I had to travel more. I, they were releasing me, but the Tallahassee airport, it wouldn't release me. It, it wouldn't release me. The Tallahassee airport would send me, oh, this is so funny. You think, you, you, you think you're called to travel. He thinks he's called to travel. No. You're called to stay here. You're called to explore the Tallahassee airport. You're called to live in the Tallahassee airport. You're called to wait. And so I learned to wait. But that experience and the difficulties of trying to do that out there from Tallahassee began to push forward an uncomfortable question. And the question was, if God is asking me to go in this direction to serve this network more, do we need a location that's more conducive to to that role? And it was important to uh, to Kim and I that we that we stay vitally connected to a local church. So we were willing to, to work more in the network, but we, we wanted to be part of a team. We wanted to be yoked into a church. We wanted to have relationships there. We wanted to be accountable to a local group of people. And we wanted the model that a local group would, in, would, would arm me with in order to travel and serve other churches. And so as soon as that question began to surface of whether there might be a better place, I I immediately began to engage the pastors and the elders with that question. I did that because first, I felt I needed their help. I felt I needed their perspective. I felt like I was not the best person to evaluate what I'm most suitable for, and I needed the help of the men and the women around me to help me evaluate that. But secondly, I wanted the process that we were going to engage in to reflect the very partnership that we're reading about here in chapter 1. I wanted the process to be a partnership in the gospel that left all of us standing stronger in the gospel. And so for for a number of months throughout 2016, I, Kim, and the pastors here who were helping us we were looking at different network churches throughout different, part, different parts of the United States to evaluate where we could be. And none of them seemed to be a suitable place to receive me and the network except for one church. And it was Summit Church, which is in Fort Myers, and Naples. There's three campuses, soon to be four. And it was already a part of our network. It's a group of men and women, strong relationships, gospel preaching, very missional in their orientation. They planted about 11 churches from a, from a, a, a church that has as its strength, the, 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 the DNA that God put in them, kind of a desire to reach out and a missional impulse And it it represented a model that I could take into the network as well. But there was only one problem. There were no roles available in this church. And so that wasn't a big problem in that we loved Four Oaks. We're happy to be at Four Oaks. Lord, if if you're going to do something, you'll just have to open the door. And then within about two to three months, I get a phone call one day. And uh, one of the guys that started Summit Church says to me, listen, just want you to know, the guy leading, the teaching pastor in the Naples campus has just unexpectedly resigned to go plant a church somewhere. We think that's the right thing for him to do. We wanted to let you know. We don't know how this affects everything, but, but here it is. So when that happened, I immediately took that information and spoke to the pastors about it. And, and, began, and, and just so you know, I, I'm so grateful. I am so grateful for the men on this pastoral team, for the elders of this church, for the wisdom that Paul and Lance and Josh have given me along the way in this process. And so as, 
as that began to become a serious consideration, I asked these, these two men that started the church summit at Fort Myers in Naples, I asked them if they would come up here to Tallahassee and meet with the leaders of Four Oaks. I, I did this because I wanted summit and the summit leaders to interact with the Four Oaks pastors without me being there so that they could ask them about my life and my marriage and my parenting and ask any questions about what it's like to work with me. But I also, I also wanted them to come up so that we would be able to connect our past to our future, that we would be able to remain and retain this vital connection where we feel so deeply connected to Four Oaks. We didn't want to lose that in the process. Folks, having to say goodbye to 30 years of history and partnership just about killed us. It just about killed Kim and I. And I don't want to do that again. I don't want to go there again. And so we want to be able to say in we want to be able to say to you in 10 years from now what Paul said to the Philippians, that we thank our God in all our remembrance of you because of our partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We wanted to protect that, wanted to keep that intact. So we were trying to remember our partnership. And the last point I want to make is just remembering God's activity. You know, this passage has some extraordinary insights into Paul's inner world and some extraordinary insights into the way Paul did relationships as well. So we've already read the verse 3. He thanks God and all of his remembrance of them. In other words, when Paul thought, which he did, about the Philippians, he would remember them. It would inspire gratitude in his heart. But he gets a lot more specific in verse 7. It's right for him to feel this way. He holds them in his heart. Verse 8, he yearns for them with the affection of Jesus Christ. I mean, we just wade into chapter 1, and we begin to glimpse the heart of this man for his people. We begin to glimpse his thankfulness to God, his prayers for them, his affections for them. And think about this. Paul is about to address in chapter 2 a people that are divided by rivalries, they're experiencing issues of pride that's separating them. There's some serious selfishness going on. There are two women that are having such a significant problem that they can't resolve it among the Philippian church. They've got to go to the apostle who's sitting in prison over the problem. And yet, yet, you know what's so amazing is that when Paul begins to approach them in chapter 1, he doesn't approach them first through their problems. He doesn't even relate to them as if they're problems. In fact, he comes right out of the gate celebrating his partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He talks about them being partakers in grace in verse 7. In other words, to him, the Philippians, of course they were sinners, but he didn't think of them first as sinners. And even when he did think of them as sinners, he remembers them in a way that elicits his thankfulness to God and his prayers for them. You know, the, the areas where they kind of had to pull it together didn't irritate Paul. It didn't agitate him. He was able, when he thought about them, to think about the best side of them. He was able to remember them for their best moments. See, if you want to know how Paul could have that kind of perspective on folks who need help, need to change, they, 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 they need to move forward, you want to know how he could do that, just look at what he believed in verse 6. Check out what he says in verse 6. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul states right up front that he has this certainty about them. I am sure of this. How can Paul relate in such an encouraging manner to a group of people that are struggling in some serious ways? Because he's sure of something. He has this confidence in the faithfulness of God to fulfill the purpose of God in the life of the Philippians. What's the purpose of God? Well, he says it himself specifically. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And I love this because it's not just something of 
between Paul and the Philippians, but it's something for all of us as we have to relate to Philippians day in and day out, and as we're somebody else's Philippian day in and day out, we can bring this same kind of orientation that we, where we can say, we can go back to their first day, he who began a good work in you, that's conversion, and then he catapults them forward to their final day, we'll bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And so we can bring that orientation to one another, just in the same way that Paul did, And therefore, we can make the same astounding assertion that Paul was able to make about the Philippians, which is basically, I know this about you. In fact, I am sure of this. I'm not just a little certain. I'm absolutely certain that what God started, he will complete. Paul Paul is certain, which is an impressive confidence for a man behind bars. Think about that. You know, Paul can't hop a flight to intervene with these guys and, and help them out. He's not picking up his cell phone and giving them a call. He's in prison, and yet he's certain. <laughs> this, is, this is a very humbling passage for me because I realize I have all of these assets. I've got a cell phone. I've, I've got internet. I've got cable news, and I live far less certain than Paul about the people that are in orbit around in my life. I mean, Kim was reminding me this past week that I have this tendency to worry. That when I have this tendency to worry, what it does is it steals my confidence in the work of God. So what worrying does is it removes the first part of that verse. It removes the, I am sure of this. And it, 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 it replaces it with, man, I hope this about you. <laughs> or I pretty sure about this. I've, I've got some hopes. I'm working, on, I'm working up some more faith here, but and it, it replaces it with something less than what God wants. And, and, and one of the things I realize week in and week out is that there's a big difference between me and the Apostle Paul. But one of the differences is that Paul seemed to remember God's work in people, God's good work in people. It was his starting point for the way he approached them. And the reason why this is so important is because because we all have Philippians in our life, don't we? In other words, people in your life that are kind of in process, where people that you think, you know, really by now you should be here, but you seem to be here. And we kind of have this self-righteous orientation where we're always pegging people for where they should be rather than where they are. And so Paul was tempted with the same thing, but but there was an orientation that he brought for people that may not be walking the pace that he prefers. And that is, he was able to see something in him. When, When Paul remembered the Philippians, his mind didn't go first to their weakness, but to their strength. It didn't go first to their problems, but to their partnership. So, you know, one of the things we can do is we can stop and say, yeah, let me just think for a second. What, what do I remember first about those that I'm called to serve? What do they know that I remember first? Do they know that I think first about them as a problem, them and their weaknesses, them in the areas where they need to grow? Or are they aware of my affection like Paul describes? See, we always have to remember that the church is a place where where sinners are called to unite. It's not, it's not just people that are, are saints and only saints or sinless saints. They're, it's a place where sinners are called to unite. In other words, we meet people that are always in process, and the privilege of being alive and the privilege of being converted is to meet them where they are and help them go to where God has called them to be. It's part of partnership. So I was reading this biography this past week about Augustine. I mean, one of the most influential theologians in the history of Christianity. He gets converted, but he still has these problems with lusts. So he takes a concubine. And he's still trying to work all that through. And and he's got a mom who's amazing, who basically prayed him into the kingdom. And the force of her faith and the force of truth that came from her was this constant, resounding 
phrase, this word, this statement, this, this belief system where she was constantly saying to him, listen, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So even as he acting like an idiot as a new believer, she's saying to him, listen, I'm sure of this. God started it. God's going to complete it. And eventually what happens with Augustine is his life comes a little bit more into line with his beliefs. You know, we all have that disparity between what we believe and, and how we live. And, and growth in Christianity is basically kind of closing the gap. But we never close the gap completely. And so there's a sense where, you know, in the church, in Four Oaks, we need to be this for each other. And that's where I want to encourage you as, as members of Four Oaks. I want to encourage you for the people that you're called to reach, for the people that you're going to be reaching when you start new congregations, that you're going to be reaching when you plant churches in the future. Let me encourage you, remember God's work in people. Remember God's work in the people that are around you. Remember it in your children. Remember it in your spouse. Make sure they're more aware of your affection than your disapproval. And I state this as somebody who struggles with that rather than somebody who's strong in that. But make sure the people around you are more aware of your affection than your disapproval. And part of the way we do that is we remember that the worst behavior that we ever encounter in Christians is not the final statement of who they are or the final statement of who they will ultimately be. And so with each other, we have to make sure that we, that we are communicating our confidence, that we're saying to each other, I am sure of this, that we have a confidence that God's good work in people is going to deliver them home. And if we lack that confidence, we make it our problem, not their problem. You know, there's a way that we can be where we can relocate our problems with unbelief onto other people and say like, well, the reason why I struggle with you is because you're not growing quickly enough. It's a great way. You might, we might as well just say, I'm pathetically immature <laughs> because it's basically saying the same things. So remember that in each other. Make sure people know your confidence in God for each other. Remember, remember your partnership in the gospel in this local church that began on the first day and extends until now. Listen, God has given you a solid eldership in this local church. God has provided Four Oaks wonderful pastors. We're talking about people that care deeply about you, people that love you, people willing to make sacrifices for you, people that, have, people that have cared for Kim and I in an unusual way. I mean, your lead pastor, Paul Gilbert, has served Kim and I repeatedly as we have walked through different things over the past three years with decisions that we've had to make, things we've had to think through, baggage from the past. Sometimes he's a phone call away. He'd be coming over or we'd be talking on the phone. Your pastor, Josh, has been a man of impeccable pursuit and humility displayed in his desire to grow, to learn, to pursue me for perspective, to pursue me for correction. And believe me when I say the flesh doesn't do that, the enemy doesn't do that, only the Spirit of God can do that in the heart of a woman or the heart of a man. Your pastor, Scott, has provided me a provocative example of someone who wants to grow each and every day. I pop into his office on Friday. Hey, what are you doing, Scott? Just wanted to say hello. Oh, I'm, I'm finishing up my last class for a master's degree that I've been working on for the last three or four years. Wait a minute, you've been, you're taking a master's degree? You're doing it on? Yeah, yeah, I've been doing this. I'm just kind of doing it on the side, you know. Because he wants to serve you, because he wants to be more equipped, because he wants to have skills to love you as a pastor in a greater measure. 
Your pastor, Rob, has been a dear friend to me. And he has a heart that is not gold, but it's a heart that is capable of expanding to whatever need you bring to him. Whatever complicated situation that you might have, his heart immediately expands to it. It fits you in and begins to encourage you out of that. Brothers and sisters, Christians search the world for pastors like this, and you have them because Jesus loves you and Jesus has put them right in your backyard. And what I'm trying to say this morning is make sure these words in Philippians chapter 1, from the first day until now, make sure those words have meaning to you. You know, the average Christian stays in the average local church two years. Make sure these words have meaning to you. Two years. Buck that trend, okay? Buck that trend because you care for your own soul. Buck that trend because you care for your marriage and your, and, and your family. Because you, you understand that a good local church is worth the sacrifice. It's worth hanging around for. It's worth it for the future of what you're trying to build. And yeah, you'll, you know, you stay in this local church and, and you'll see mistakes. You'll see sins and you'll be disappointed and you'll see people failing. But as you see that, make sure that you increasingly allow this passage to form your response. Yeah, there's problems, but I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, let's let Paul's example inspire us. There was a sense where Paul was able to remember people, not for their worst moments, but for their best moments. And he inspires us that way this morning. Listen, the the weekend that I resigned from that local church in Philadelphia I I didn't know what to do after that. There was no plan B. There was nothing in my back pocket. There were, I mean, I found two websites that were like Christian headhunters. I mean, who knew there was such a thing? But Christian headhunters. And so I'm like on these websites on three, three or four days later on one on Saturday. I'm just going through, scrolling through, you know, denominational this and Methodist that and nothing wrong with any of that, but, you know, just outside of my world, outside of my thinking, you know, be a, be work in this Christian school or in this parachurch organization. And so it was, it was so discouraging. And so the following day I get on the second site and I'm having the same experience and scrolling through and then out of the blue up pops this teaching pastor position in this church which is in Tallahassee, called Four Oaks. And I thought, whoa, what is this? And I began looking at it and scrolling through it. And then I dropped beyond that into, the, into your website and into your statement of faith and into different things. And I'm getting really encouraged. Kim's over in the kitchen. Kim, Kim, come here for a second. And so she comes in the room. She's kind of looking over my shoulder down at the computer. I said, look, isn't this great? Isn't this great? Yeah, because we can't believe there's actually like one job out there in the Christian world that I might be suitable for. So we're having this conversation. Do you think I should apply? I don't know. This also seems so weird. What are you supposed to do? We didn't know, so I shut the computer. The next morning, Kim and I are out to breakfast. It's about 8.30 in the morning, and my phone rings. I pick up my phone, and on the other end of the line is Daniel Montgomery. Daniel was the man who started Sojourn Network. And Daniel says to me, hey, how are you doing? I said, how am I doing? How much time do you have? I can't believe, I'll tell you how I'm doing. So I read him in on everything that's been going on because we hadn't talked in about a year. We had known one another for a while, but hadn't talked in about a year. And Daniel's kind of a like get down to business guy. So he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me tell you why I called. <laughs> uh, and he said, I was, with, I was at this church two weeks ago. So I was doing a men's conference or something. And he said, I'm sitting down, I'm talking to the pastors, and they're telling me they need a teaching pastor. And, and I said to them, well, tell me, give me the profile, what you're looking for. And he said, they gave me the profile. And he said, you know what I said to them? He said, I said to them, you know what, you don't need somebody like that. He said, you need somebody, a guy like Dave Harvey. And he said to me, and, and so they said to me, well, why don't you call Dave Harvey? He said, so 
He said, I will. I will. I'll call Dave Harper. So he said, so I'm calling you right now. I said, Daniel, that's extraordinary. In light of the conversation that I just told you about and all that's taken place over the last week, that's extraordinary. I said, where's the church? And he said, well, it's in Florida. And my eyes immediately, you know, like went wide because Kim and I had been praying. We've been saying, Lord, please don't take us out of Philadelphia. Please don't take us out of Philadelphia. But if you do, send us to Florida. So he said, Florida. I thought, oh my goodness, this is getting good. And then I said, what's the name of the church? And he said, Four Oaks. And how can I describe this? It was the first, like, spark of God's evident goodness that visited that dark tunnel that we had been in for a number of years prior, that dark, depressing place. And I found in that moment, when he said Four Oaks, this unexpected hope sprung to life that said something to me like, maybe, maybe, this, maybe this isn't the end for me. Maybe it's a new beginning. Maybe God still has good. Maybe He who began a good work in me really will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. It's a holy thing when a church meets a man in the cesspool of his worst trial to reclaim him for mission. That's a holy thing. And that's part of what I'm trying to say thank you for this morning. How, how do I say thank you for being, a, you know, for being a weapon, for being a tool in God's hands to remind Kim and to remind me that God is doing a good work, that this chapter may have ended, but there's another chapter that's beginning, that he's at work, that he's still powerful, that he's still on the throne. How does a pastor possibly say thank you for that? Well, perhaps the most appropriate way is to conclude this message and to conclude my tenure as your teaching pastor saying with Paul, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you because of our partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. Brooks, we're going to pray for Dave and Kim here in just a second. But before we do that, I did want to say a couple of things as we close our service today. You know, over the next several weeks, we're going to have the opportunity to say goodbye to the Harveys in a, in a variety of venues as pastors and leaders and in their community group. But I want to say a couple of things that I think are particularly pertinent for us to remind ourselves of today as a church family related to Kim and Dave and their, and their impact here. You know, Dave mentioned that four years ago was a very tough time for him. Um, and if you were with us, you remember four years ago was a very tough time for us here at Four Oaks. And we were, we were reeling from a very traumatic executive level leadership transition that God had taken us through. And we were trying to get our legs and we felt wobbly. We felt like Susan and I do when the kids drag us on mission space for three times in a row. And we were trying to get our, get our bearings a little bit. And 
I'd been here for 15 years and, and served in a variety of capacities, and the elders extended a call for me to be the lead pastor. The main problem being, I had no idea what I was doing, which I know must bring great comfort to you this morning. But I knew enough to know that I needed something. I needed some help. had a great team of guys here. I needed a, a partner, a teacher, a leader, a mentor, a, a statesman. And Dave, that is the role that God has called you into. He's calling you, I don't want to say he's calling you out of it because I know you will continue to be that partner in the gospel for me. But when I think about Dave's impact here and a metaphor to describe it, I think, Dave, of your, of your leadership here more like a river and less like a pool. And here's what I mean, like a swimming pool. You know, leaders love to make a big splash in the, in the pool that God situates them in. And they cause a, a lot of activity. And we, and we know what that's like just in, a, in, in swimming. When our kids jump in the pool and water goes on the side of the pool, the, the, there's, a, there, there's an impact, but it's, it's, so, it's so fleeting. You know, the, the water goes outside of the pool and lays on the concrete and the sun comes and, you know, 30 seconds later, you can't even tell anyone's been there. That's what a lot of leadership looks like. And I don't think it's biblical or a blessing. But the kind of leadership you've exemplified, Dave, I believe is more like a river. That the hard work of excavating the channels for which water will flow long after that worker has been gone. That's the real work of ministry. And so when I, when I think about how you have been a, a master excavator, Dave, and I think about the ways that your DNA, you and Kim, will remain with us as a church family, which may not be immediately obvious to just a person coming in the door on a Sunday morning, but I can assure you is felt deeply by us as a, as a church family. Let, let me just mention a couple of these things before you come up and we pray for you. One thing that I would say, folks, that we have the blessing of as a church is being in communion and relationship with other Christians and churches and ministries here in the city of Tallahassee. That was not always the case. God really humbled us to show us, you know what, there's a lot of great churches and ministries united around the gospel. And now when I think about our friends at Wildwood Church and Celebration and City Church and St. Peter's, and I could go on and on and on, and, and while they may get it wrong on baptism, we, they, we, we, we are united in the gospel. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that we've hosted hundreds of ministry leaders here. And honored men like Bob Evans and at Wildwood. And, and to be able to be a part of that community, that's something that I directly link back to your leadership. So thank you for that. I think about the fact, for Oaks, that, that we get to be a part of a network of churches called the Sojourn Network, which helps us remember that as a local church, we don't exist merely for ourselves. We exist for the kingdom and we want to be raising up and starting new congregations and planning churches and ministering to the broader body of Christ. We have been given a stewardship as a church. And so, Dave, that is a lasting imprint that you leave as part of, a part of your, your time here. I think about team ministry. Because I don't have to rehearse to you the, the rates of, of pastoral burnout and Guys just saying, I can't do it any longer. When people ask us as a team, hey, are you burned out? Are you exhausted? Are you tired? I can honestly say, no. I'm looking for stuff to do, okay, all the time. Because I've got such a great team of men, a great team of elders. But it's not just the workload, because these guys work hard. It's about the spiritual load that these men help to carry and that you help to carry as a church family. That idea of team, we think, is God-glorifying, and I really trace that back to, to you, Dave. But, but if I could pin one thing on a, for you personally that I think will have a lasting legacy here, 
See, confession, us leaders, we don't like to show weakness. We don't like, unless it somehow makes us look good, then we'll share, then we'll share our weakness. But we, we, we don't like to do that. We like to, to, to be competent and strong. But one of the things that really stood out as Dave first came here was his willingness to boast in his weakness and to say, here's who I am, and here's my life, and here's all my stuff. And, you know, that, that's where the grace of God meets us, folks. And that's where that, I believe the grace of God has met us through your example, Dave. I'm going to invite Dave and Kim to come up here as we close our service. And I'm going to invite also our elders and pastors who are here as well to join me up here. And one of the things that I wrote in the letter that I sent to you all, and you've heard us say it many times, it's a, it's a Tim Keller paraphrase, but valuing the kingdom of God. Remember, remember we're going to look at this in the Lord's Prayer in a couple of weeks. We're either building the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man. Only one will last, the kingdom of God. But when a church says that we're going to value the kingdom of God, that means we oftentimes have to make hard decisions. We oftentimes have to say goodbye. Now, for the Harveys, that's goodbye with a little g, okay? I have no doubt, Dave, you'll be back in this pulpit um, sooner than later as the executive director of the network. And let me just say, folks, as being a part of the family of churches called the Sojourn Network, I couldn't be more excited that, that day that you were the director. And, that is, and, and that, that's a great privilege. You know, one of the things that's cool when you travel around, maybe you're in another country or across the, the country or in another continent or something, you, and you're a sports fan and you'll see somebody wearing the Seminole gear. It's just like, oh, that's kind of cool. Okay, like we exchange the look. We don't know each other, but we, we, we connect, and there's that language. Or somebody's wearing their gator gear, you know, gator, you know, like that. And hope you take that appreciation with you as you, as you go down, Dave. But there's this, there's a, you know you're all part of the same nation, the same tribe, the same family. So, so a number of years ago, we, we gave these, these Four Oaks Community Church bumper stickers out to everybody, okay? And some of you have faithfully put them on your cars, and some of you have been hard-hearted and rebellious, okay? Let me just say that. Now, we're going to give this to you, okay? And l- let me just say a couple things about this. This is not the only gift you're going to receive, okay? All right? <laughs> it's not. There, there, there's, other, there's other gifts to, to follow, okay? And number two, we're not asking you to put it on your car and drive around Summit Church like this because... You didn't put the magnet on your car here. Why would you put it on down there? So, but it is to remind you and us that we share a deep partnership. You'll always be a part of the Four Oaks family. And, and, and what a great privilege that is. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask um, Scott and Josh, will you, will you pray for the Harveys? Let's all gather around, lay hands on them, and then I will dismiss us. Oh God, we come to you right now with grateful hearts. We are first grateful for Jesus Christ, who as our advocate um, and as our mediator reconciled us to the Father so that we can come to your throne of grace and receive grace and mercy in our time of need. We thank you for Jesus. And we also thank you for men and women who are like Jesus. Thank you for the Christ-like character that Dave and Kim have just so humbly demonstrated throughout their time here. We thank you for their example. We thank you for their partnership in the gospel. We thank you for their love and for their friendship. Lord, I thank you particularly for Dave. Thank you for his humility. Thank you for um, the way that he does boast in his weakness. I thank you also for his love for your word. Thank you for the way that he so ably and um, just gratefully opens up God's word each, each Sunday. I thank you also for his listening ear and for his desire to know us and to ask us good questions and to draw our hearts out. Lord, I also thank you for Kim. I thank you for her hospitality. I thank you for the way that she is just warm and kind and, and, um, and demonstrates uh, a gentleness and a, and a, and a desire to, um, to draw us uh, into community. Lord, I thank you for Dave and for Kim and for 
um, the precious friends that they are. And we pray that you would go before them, that you would lead the way as you already have been. We ask that you would sell their home. We ask that you would bring them additional friendships and relationships the way that you have here at Summit. And Lord, we, um, we know that this is uh, a, not a goodbye. This is a, this is a see you later. <laughs> we'll continue to minister together in the gospel. And so we're grateful for that. Lord, please bless Dave and Kim in Jesus' name. Father, the Apostle Paul reminded Timothy, his son in the faith, that a Christian leader must watch both his life and his doctrine closely. Uh, and it's in doing that that he'll save both himself and his hearers. And we just thank you uh, in this moment for the ways in which Dave and Kim have been faithful to obey that command, for the ways in which they have uh, cared for us and loved us, um, Dave being so faithful to teach us faithfully what the Scriptures call us to do, and for their example and what they've modeled for us in their lives of humility, of faithfulness to Jesus Christ, of dependence upon uh, the incredible grace and the riches of kindness that you've lavished upon us in the gospel. And Lord, we uh, send them off um, with uh, a certainty, confident that we are a stronger church because they've been here. We are more ready to stand against the enemy and to uh, commit ourselves to the mission and the calling that you've given to us as a church because of their faithful service here. And we send them out in full assurance that you have uh, much work left for them, uh, much blessing to bring to Summit Church and to the saints there. And we look forward to how you're going to work in the ways in which you're going to glorify yourself in this man and in this woman in the days ahead. We thank you for them, and we commend them to the word of your grace, which is able to give them an inheritance with all who are sanctified, as Paul prayed uh, for the elders uh, of the Ephesian church in his farewell to them. We love them, and we thank you for them through Jesus in his name. Before I invite you to, to stand, I'm going to give you this benediction. Before we do that, though, let's honor the Harveys. This is my prayer for you and our prayer for Dave and Kim, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God.